So before you go on your internship, you have to do a cooking practical. So this certified master chef is my instructor. And I'm supposed to make French onion soup, put in the chicken stock, put in the veal stock. And I go to season uh, with salt and pepper. But instead of taking like the pepper from a fresh pepper mill, I try to take a shortcut. I see black pepper like in the jar. I open it, the big spout comes in, all the fucking black pepper spills in. Instead of like just throwing that away and trying to make it over, I serve that with the melted cheese and the bread in it. And Chef Michael's freaking scoops in all this pepper in his mouth. He spits it out. You fail. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. That was J.J. Johnson, award-winning chef and founder of the rice bowl shop Field Trip. Inspired by African food, his passion for cooking has led him to culinary destinations around the world. But before his expertise hit the table, there were quite a few challenges he had to face. Through failures at culinary school, job rejections, and racial discrimination, J.J. has continued to believe in himself and the unique story he has to share through food. Staying true to his roots, his identity has permeated every dish he creates. We'll start out this episode where those roots were planted, on the streets of Harlem at family cookouts. Throughout your childhood, you were making trips to visit your family in Harlem, right? We would come to, to Harlem for holidays, um, hang out at my grandma Laura's house. Similar to what we would do on my mom's side, we would go to Queens and go to like pig roast. And I would be there like underneath the chef at the pig groves asking him questions as a kid when everybody else was playing basketball. So like looking back, everybody knew I wanted to be a chef. Nobody did not know that I didn't want to be a chef. It's because you were just announcing it to everyone. Yeah, I was announcing it to everybody. Just The whole, the whole world, world will know. Yeah, the whole world <laughs> will know, yes. You know, you don't really remember much at that age, but I remember going into the kitchen with my grandmother. My grandmother's Puerto Rican. I grew up with her... Um, and instead of like really getting into cartoons, even though I still love cartoons, I would jump in the kitchen with my grandmother, my two great great aunts that were her sous chefs, and she was injecting food DNA into my soul. Her kitchen was filled with loud salsa music, or they would be dancing and harmonizing. You would always see the smoke coming off the stove, or the hard simmer, or that ch when it would hit, you know, the side of the stove with the open flame. Uh, but it was a vibrant, cool, fun place to be in. When I look back in life, that that's where all the fun was happening. When did you see this as maybe like a an actual option for you to have this be a bigger part of your life? Not just, you know, going around your grandma's kitchen, but maybe one day going around your own kitchen. Seven or eight years old, I um, saw a commercial to Culinary Institute of America, and I told my parents I would go to culinary school there. Wait, you just saw, what was the commercial? How, that must have been some freaking commercial no, really, that you see story. it, and you're like, yes, me. Yeah, they, I was like, yo, I'm going to be a chef. That's where I'm going to go, right there. That's cool. 
my mom like laughed and chuckled and then you move you know you move full moving forward i was in the kitchen always wanting to try to cook people's birthday dinners or i was you know 14 years old a dishwasher riding my bike to the country club where i worked at and was a dishwasher so food has always been in my language it's been a language of mine something i've always gravitated towards as your high school's wrapping up what are you thinking about in terms of your next steps and like what are you looking towards so now right doing a bunch of catering jobs all up and down like the northeast of Pennsylvania. And then I say to my mom, okay, let's go visit colleges. And I show her all the culinary schools. And she's like, okay, we got we can't we can't just look at culinary school. We gotta look at something other than culinary school. I said, well let's go look at these schools, mom. And if you don't like them, then we can go look at something else. We go to Culinary Institute of America in High Park, New York. And this campus is like super small, quiet super focused on cooking food and that's the school that I saw the commercial for you can feel the difference of intensity level in the school what do you mean you can feel the intensity the way the classrooms were conducted the way the chefs spoke to the students and i said to my mom like okay we got accepted at Johnson and Wales but let's see if i get accepted to school this is the best culinary school in the world like this is a harvard of culinary schools i went to the interview process my mom brought me to the interview that day so did the interview get into school i remember the letter coming to my house and my mom my dad was there we opened the letter my little sister opened the letter and i really liked the first sentence it says you're accepted and i was like i told you guys how we get in here right it was like <laughs> chef jj yeah, right like, we knew about chef jj right it was like yeah i was super excited could you describe one of your biggest fuck ups oh, in yeah, culinary yeah, yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. So so before <laughs> you go on your internship, you have to do a cooking practical. So the certified master chef is my instructor for the cooking practical or judging me. There's only like at that time like 28 certified master chefs in the world. Chef Michael's there, I'm super nervous. I'm like, fuck Chef Michael, my hands are sweating. And I'm supposed to make French onion soup, put in the chicken stock, put in the veal stock. I go to season uh, with salt and pepper. But instead of taking like the pepper from a fresh pepper mill, I try to take a shortcut. I see black pepper like in the jar and I open up the top and instead of putting it in my hand or in a thing to sprinkle it in, I open it, the big spout comes and all the fucking black pepper spills in. And I look back oh, no. and I'm like, why the hell did I just put it through like a shinwa, like a uh, strainer to get it all out? Instead of like just throwing that away and trying to make it over i serve that with the melted cheese and the bread in it and chef michael's freaking scoops in all this pepper in his mouth he spits it out you fail and then everybody else is talking about that they pass and you're saying you fail you have to do it again so it's like double embarrassment and all, all my culinary friends know the story by heart but what i did was i went back and i just I made French onion soup over and over and over. I did dough popion. Now that might not be the dish I would get, but I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't screw that dish up again. Now, did I get that dish on my practical on the second time? No. Do I remember what I got on my dish on the second time? No, I know I passed it in 86 and I was out. And then I went on my externship at Tribeca Grill in New York City. So is that like the moment when it clicked? When I worked at Tribeca Grill in New York City, then I started to know what a real kitchen felt like. I worked under Chef Stephen Lowendowski. 
It was one of the busiest kitchens in New, in New York. Was I really cooking or doing nothing, but I saw the flow, I felt the environment, you know, the vibrancy, the energy, all that's what made me feel like what it's like to be in the kitchen. It just felt that was what I consider my first real kitchen job. Weren't you also doing like entrepreneurial endeavors, like night, like throwing nightclubs and like personal <laughs> chefing at the same time too? Yeah, yeah. Went to when I came back from Tribeca Grill, I need, I wanted to keep making money. So I was like, what can I do? Like, I know how to cook a little bit now. Like, I know how to make that crab cake. I got the recipe, right? Let me go and rock out with my stuff. So I started personal chefing for the lady who made Chanel Number no. Five, and her husband was the ex CEO of Perry Ellis, Sue Solomon. Hillary Clinton came through there. So that was one thing I did. And then I threw parties in a nightclub with my buddy, Kamal Grant, who owns Sublime Donuts now. Being a personal chef, you're kind of master of that domain. And I'm wondering how it differs from the, like, like being in a restaurant chef. Yeah, way, way two different things, right? You're, you're kind of at the disposal of the people, right? And you're just setting, you might be cooking for eight people, 10 people, 20 people, 30 people. Most of the time you're in the kitchen yourself. Maybe you have a helper or, or two. In a restaurant kitchen, it is it is a flow, it is an intensity, it is early mornings, long nights. At one point, I thought I would become a personal chef or a caterer. I actually liked it. And then um, I graduated from Culinary Institute of America. I told my parents that I would get my bachelor's, but I wasn't going to get out to Culinary Institute of America, so I got accepted to Seton Hall University. And when you asked me if it clicked, when I went to Seton Hall, that's when it clicked. I was talking about food so much that it started to annoy people. Like, yo man, all you do is talk about food. Like, oh yeah, I just graduated from culinary school. I'm just here for business management. And um, so I finished out a semester. That semester made me realize that, oh, I am meant to be a chef. I'm meant to be, I'm supposed to be cooking. So I took a year off lived at home with my parents and worked at a place called Skytop Lodge. On my first day there, I literally almost cut my thumb off. And the chef was like, don't worry, Johnson, you're good. Just wrap it up, put a glove on, put duct tape on mine. We gotta go into service, man. Probably made me like, why I'm so tough in the kitchen now. Yeah, so maybe like six, seven months I worked at Skytop Lodge and then went back to culinary school and then graduated 07. I come out of culinary school, my bachelor's. I actually take a job, a management training program at Wegmans in prepared food section. Whoever thought prepared foods would ever blow up. But I missed the private, I started to miss the private kitchen. So I was trying to find a job back in the world. And every time I would go to an interview, people were like, oh yeah, man, we'll hire you for a sous chef. I'm like, yo, I've been a sous chef for like seven years now. And, and I would say, well, why wouldn't you give me that position? And they would never give me like a straight answer. Why do you think it was? I'm not sure. I could say a, a bunch of different things on assumption. If I go back and look at those places now that I interviewed for, a lot of those kitchens have a lot of issues with Me Too movement, racial disparity. Certain places I encountered different cooks or different people saying different slurs or different words. But yeah, I would say when I was applying the job that these major restaurant hitters and them telling me I wasn't qualified for the job or the, and and then I would call chef back and say, hey, chef, can you let me know what I can do and not be able to give me anything to tell me how to progress my career? It's like, well, the only reason why I can look back and believe it is just because of the way I looked. 
so at that time, this is when Chopped was becoming a big thing. So I was going and trying to get on Chopped. I wasn't getting on Chopped. I was getting declined. I don't know why they were declining me. And a lady named Beth emails me on the side. I was like, yo, there's this new show coming out called Rocco's Dinner Party. You should apply for it. I get chosen to go on Rocco's Dinner Party. I don't tell a soul. The theme of my dinner was like uh, reenacting a brownstone. And I thought about my grandmother from Harlem and the dishes she would cook. I did creamy grits with braised oxtails and fresh tomato salads. And uh, I wanted to win in my episode. And that led to a gentleman named Alexander Smalls calling me to then talk to me about this restaurant project called The Cecil. And I wind up going with Alexander to Ghana for two months and I cooked in West Africa. I go there, I cook American themed dinners and then I come very absorbed with this food of the diaspora, this West African food. And it reminds me of my Puerto Rican grandma's kitchen. I cooked at a place called Villa Monticello. The food that they were cooking in their kitchen were like peri-peri prawns, you know, chicken yasa, you know, dibby-dibby, like all these different kind of flavorful points that I didn't know anything about. And the first dish I ever ate there were these peri-peri prawns. I took a bite. It was so spicy. My eyes started to tear. But it was the first moment of connection with me and the cook, Miguel. And then from that moment, then they started to entrust in me because I really loved the flavor. I can still taste it now. And we started cooking together and it just showed that food is a common language that it didn't, doesn't matter where you're at or what you're doing. And I just cooked there for 60 days and had a great time. It was a defining moment for me though. Like I left there with marching orders from the ancestors to say, this is what you should be cooking and this is what you should be doing. When we get back from Ghana, we start, come up with this amazing concept. And right before we open the doors, I just go to Alexander and say, hey man, I hope they don't mistake in this for soul food. And when I say they, I mean the media. Because, you know, most restaurants where Black people are cooking are Southern or soul food, finger licking good, fried chicken, where this was a very different expression of Black. You know, this was a very storytelling way. Why did you think those stories of Africa were important to tell? It was very important to me because those stories were me. I was able to express myself on a plate, which I've never been able to do before. So the storytellings of that were, were very important. But the CISO ran its course and I wanted to, it was time for me to spread my wings. I have this idea of a rice bowl shop. Let me try to figure this out. My first stop was a pop-up at Chef's Club and it sold down in two days. That three week pop-up turned into three months and it became like one of the hottest things in New York City. Steph Curry actually came by. I was so many celebrities that were coming in there. I was able to meet my one of my investors, and then that's how I was able to get to Field Trip. Then I got invited to India because everybody knew I was so obsessed with rice. I got invited to India to, to check out these rice farms. Met like nine generation rice farmers, Looking back of everywhere I traveled, rice was always at the center of the table. And why wasn't rice at the center of the table here in the United States? You know, rice is like this very disrespected ingredient here. The bigger part of this all, like, how can I help rejuvenate this heirloom, granddaddy, grandma grains of the world so people actually can eat something that's good for them? And the hardest part was making people realize this vision. And then to say that we're going to do this in Harlem, 
people were like, hold on, 115 between 116? Like, that's the hood, bro. It's like, yeah, well, I'm trying to disrupt it. I'm trying to show people want to have good for you food. I always believe the way you get recruited is the way you play. And the landlord here, when the moment I left the Cecil, he wanted me to open a restaurant here. We opened the doors, started off really strong. It was like this kind of roller coaster effect. We would lose money, we'd break even, we'd make a little money, we'd lose money, break even, make a little bit of money. We would kind of go kind of like this. And then the pandemic hit. What happened for us during the pandemic, people that didn't know we were even here, that were just home, started to realize we were here. People that never ate in our restaurant were like, yo, let's just give this place a shot. So that, and then Black Lives Matter happened and people were like, hold on, this is a black owned restaurant. Let me go give it even more of a shot. And then it just accelerated the business for like demand in other sectors of New York City. How do you view Field Trip and its role in the community? So Field Trip, I think, has made people come to the realization that people don't want to eat fried food all the time. People don't want finger looking good, right? People don't want super fast. People want to have an option to eat better when they want to. And I think we'll see in communities that look like field trip, brown and black communities, that the landscape of food will start to change. The restaurants that move in, the style of restaurants, we'll see sweet greens and dig-ins and chopped and dos toros and lemonade, right? Where before these communities were just an afterthought. Now people realize they can get better food fast, but in the community they live in. Field trip is a, what I consider a community-based restaurant but what we will consistently keep doing or knock on wood, hopefully be able to do is keep growing in communities that look like Harlem, right? Keep disrupting those communities. If it's in the Bronx or New York City or Washington Heights or going by Columbia University or Fordham, going into these communities and showing that you can get this style of food, this cultural style of food or what America is inside of a restaurant that reflects you. And we're also just gonna also hire people from the community, but it doesn't mean that we're just giving them a job where they live. It means that we hopefully are giving them a living wage that they can put their kids through college, maybe upgrade their apartment, maybe buy a home one day. That's what it's all about. A a class of people that don't really get an opportunity um, at other places that look like us. JJ's always had a magnetic pull towards community. Even as a kid, the allure of cartoons and basketball meant nothing if he could learn about his family's culture. And where was this opportunity always presented? The kitchen. Every dish in every kitchen reveals a myriad of insight into the people behind those kitchens. His grandmother's salsa music, the fiery spice of prawns, the rice fields, These were the experiences that enticed JJ and bonded him with others. Knowing the unifying power of food, it must have been infuriating to realize that his identity and community were left out of the culinary world. There were so few opportunities for JJ to authentically represent his community and personal identity. But rather than letting this discourage him, JJ opened up Field Trip, a restaurant that serves food by its community for its community. With a universal grain like rice, JJ has found the perfect tool to connect his customers with the story of the African diaspora. Like he said, food is a common language. What better way to uplift voices that are misunderstood than through a language that everyone can understand?
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.